Welcome to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast, a show helping you find better ways to live, run, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. The website for the show is paleorunner.org. I wanted to let you know that I'm offering personalized run coaching. If you're interested in working with me, go to paleorunner.org slash coaching. I'm here today with Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and certified Pilates instructor who is one of the country's most sought-after real food experts for real food for pregnancy experts. Her approach to nutrition embraces real food, integrative medicine, and mindful eating. You can learn more about Lily by visiting her blog, PilatesNutritionist.com, and read her book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. You can also snag a free exclusive guide to managing gestational diabetes at realfoodforgd.com. Lily, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Lily, so I'm interested to know, how did you get interested in gestational diabetes in the first place? Yeah, well, it's a kind of a funny story. I sort of fell into it uh, by accident. So um, after I'd done my my uh, traditional training in dietetics, I um, came across a job opportunity to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, uh, which is a state-run organization that helps um, medical professionals around the best practices for gestational diabetes. And being in California, they are uh, incredibly progressive compared to the rest of the country. So, you know, we would give different different guidelines from um, the um, national standards on managing gestational diabetes. So I worked with that organization to come up with nutrition guidelines for care, um, exercise guidelines for care, which I know you want to talk about more today, and um, ended up working clinically with one of um, the perinatologists with our organization for a couple of years as her go-to dietitian and diabetes educator. So I was able to implement all of the guidelines, like the public policies that we had set in the clinical setting and see really how they worked, where they worked, where they didn't, where they needed to be adjusted. And since I come definitely from a real food, you know, ancestral nutrition background, um, I've, you know, made some tweaks along the way of how I uh, manage gestational diabetes. And that led me to put it all out in a book. Um, so, yeah, that's the short end of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you you said you have a you you take an ancestral approach to eating. What does that mean for you? Well, I think we have to be really cautious in how we interpret nutrition science. So you know we didn't even have we hadn't even discovered a lot of vitamins till a hundred years ago. Some vitamins were discovered after the so-called essential nutrients had been named. As, such as choline, for example, which is really essentially a B vitamin, but it wasn't even, we didn't even have like a dietary reference intake for that until 1998. And that one's absolutely crucial for brain development in babies. It's crucial for a lot of different functions in the body outside of pregnancy. But fact is, women who don't get enough choline can have just as negative side effects as not getting enough folate. And everybody is all obsessed with taking your folic acid, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think we really have to go back to what traditional cultures did, which foods they prized, because a lot of times the foods they prized are rich in not only the nutrients we know are essential for health and essential for um, pregnancy, but nutrients we don't even have a name for yet. So I think we're just at like the very early stages of nutrition science. We know a lot and there's a lot more that we don't know. So we kind of have to balance out, you know, what the science says and what traditional wisdom um, has taught us. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I really like that approach because it's a very humble approach and it, it realizes that there's still a lot to learn. We haven't learned everything and there's still going to be right. more that we need to learn. Let's take a look at, say, the you mentioned vitamins during pregnancy. Um, there's a lot of different opinions out there, um, sort of in the real food community of whether you should take vitamins or shouldn't when you're pregnant or if you should just get everything from food. What's your opinion? Yeah. Uh, that's a complicated question. I think, I think a, uh, prenatal vitamin that is a food-based prenatal vitamin is a good idea just to fill in some of the gaps you might have in your diet. Because even if you're like a really good eater, chances are you're not going to be getting every single thing you need every single day. So I think it is probably a good idea just to take one. Um, but there's, you don't get everything that you need in a prenatal vitamin and a prenatal vitamin won't make up for a bad diet. No amount of supplements will make up for a bad diet. So if you're a person who regularly eats, you know, liver from grass fed animals, green leafy vegetables, eggs with the yolks, bone broth, um, all these nutrient dense foods, you could probably get away without a prenatal vitamin. If you're not as diligent about getting those foods, and I would say it's probably a good idea, but you want to be really careful with the source of your prenatal vitamin because certain vitamins um, are are different when they're synthetic compared to when they're found in food. So like folate versus folic acid is one example of that. And then in addition to the prenatal vitamin, sometimes you're not going to get enough of certain nutrients in your food or even the prenatal vitamin, like vitamin D, for example. We have a lot of evidence showing that the so-called recommended daily allowance of 600 IUs is not enough outside of pregnancy, but especially in pregnancy too. And so even if you take a prenatal vitamin, you're not going to get much of that. So unless you live in a Southern climate and you're outside a lot without sunscreen, getting your vitamin D from the sun, chances are you're not going to get enough of that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned a couple things there, um, choline and folic acid versus uh, folate. Can you tell me where are some, what are some good sources of choline that people uh, could focus on and then the difference between folate and folic acid? Sure. Um, so choline is like, I like to call it a, a cousin of folate kind of because it has a lot of similar functions in the body to folate. Um, but choline is found primarily in liver. That's the highest source and egg yolks. Those two are by far the best sources. You'll find smaller amounts of choline in certain um, fatty meats, certain seafood um, products, um, teeny bit in things like cauliflower, certain beans, but really your primary sources are going to be eggs and liver, big time. And then when it comes to um, folate, Funny enough, a lot of the sources of folate or or a lot of the sources of choline, rather, are really good sources of folate. So liver and egg yolks are excellent. (laughs) Um, Mm. But we have to remember folate comes from the word foliage, meaning leafy plants. So all your leafy greens are going to be an excellent source of folate. You'll find it widely um, distributed throughout the food supply. A lot of different plant foods will have it. And then animals that have been fed properly and hopefully like cows that have access to pasture and chickens that are allowed to roam and peck and eat bugs and eat grasses and other things, those are going to have um, a lot of folate and it's going to be more concentrated. The thing about the folate versus folic acid comes down to the structure of the, it comes down to like organic chemistry, basically. Folic acid is a synthetic version of folate. The folate you find in food 
comes in many, many different forms. Um, but it has, so to speak, different things attached to the base molecule that is like folic acid that you get in supplements that changes the way it functions in the body. So certain people, it's actually quite a high percentage. They estimate 40 to 60% of pregnant women don't have um, the genetics to use folic acid. They need all this stuff <laughs> that like molecularly that's attached to um, the folate found in foods to use it properly. And that's usually some sort of a methyl group. So if you look for an appropriate folate supplement, if you're one of that, one of the people in the 40 to 60%, or even if you're not, just to play it safe, I would look for something that has L-methylfolate, um, and there's also L-MTHF, another type of folate, same thing. And it has the methyl groups attached to it already, which is really um, how folate exerts its, its um, anti-birth defects um, um, things on the body. If it doesn't have the methyl attached or if you lack the um, genetic machinery to do that on your own, then you're not going to get the beneficial effects of um, folic acid. So really want to be getting most of it from food primarily, um, trying not to rely on the processed foods, especially, I mean, I know most people listening eat paleo anyways, but if people are told, oh, get your folate from um, cereal, well, most cereals are made with refined grains and then they add synthetic folic acid to it. So it's not, <laughs> it's not going to help you out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's kind of the, the basics on, on folate. Okay, so it sounds like if people are eating liver and egg yolks on a, re a regular basis and um, eating lots of leafy greens, they're going to be good. Is there any danger of eating too much liver? Because I know that was one of the things they told my wife when they asked us what we're doing for vitamins when uh, she was pregnant. Is we, we mentioned, right. well, we're getting a lot of vitamins from liver and we're taking a, a handful of other supplements. Um, they, they didn't like the fact that she was eating liver during pregnancy. So is there any danger to eating too much. Yes. And this is something that I go into a lot of detail in the book um, on specifically because there's so much controversy around liver. Um, I've spoken for a lot of um, like mainstream pregnancy organizations like the March of Dimes who still have within their, I mean, their whole organization is about, about preventing birth defects, but they still have in their literature, avoid liver because liver is very high in vitamin A. And there are some old studies on vitamin A that showed that high supplemental doses of vitamin A can increase the risk of certain birth defects. But when you actually look at the studies and look at liver versus vitamin A, um, they are not of the same, um, they don't have the same risks of leading to birth defects. And so there's some people who are finally saying, um, pregnant women should not be told to avoid liver because there's a lot of nutrients in liver that provide for a healthy pregnancy that are really difficult to obtain otherwise. So A, there's the choline. Liver is by far the richest food in choline that we know of. Um, so the choline's in there, folate's in there, a variety of B vitamins, including vitamin B12, iron in a really absorbable form, um, and it happens to have all the fat-soluble vitamins, including vitamin A. Most types of liver are not excessive in vitamin A with the exception of polar bear liver. So, you know, you've heard the story of the Antarctic explorers, or I think maybe they were up in Alaska, um, where they ate polar bear liver and they died from vitamin A toxicity. Polar bear liver happens to be 
extraordinarily high in vitamin A. So that is too much. <laughs> and if you don't have the genetics to adapt to it, uh, yeah, you, you can die. But other types of liver, um, that's not the case. And it's unsupported by science to say that you can't have liver um, during pregnancy. In fact, a lot of pregnant women are deficient in vitamin A. Um, one of the studies I was reading showed that 30% of women, uh, pregnant women, don't get enough vitamin A. And these were people who lived in, um, you know, urban areas where you have access to all the foods. We hear about vitamin A deficiency a lot in, in um, like, third world countries where they don't have access to animal foods. And so they give vitamin A supplements to prevent all sorts of problems. These were in women who had access to all these different foods and they were still low in vitamin A. Um, and just one more thing I want to throw in there is there's all sorts of misinformation on vitamin A given. Everyone's like, oh, you can get your vitamin A from carrots or kale or sweet potatoes. Mm. And you actually can't get true vitamin A from plant foods. You get provitamin A, usually in the form of some sort of carotenoid, which your body can in very small amounts convert to true vitamin A but it's done at a very, very small percentage. Um, so it's really not a reliable source of vitamin A, and you're not going to get enough from plants alone. And actually, the more plant foods rich in vitamin A you eat, the less, the lower percentage of that you convert to vitamin A. So it's kind of a catch-22. You can't just like drink you know, a gallon of carrot juice and be like, all right, I'm good on vitamin A. Your body's not going to convert most of it into um, true uh, vitamin A. You've got to get it from animal foods. Okay. So a frequent guest that we have on the show, I remember reading his book. His name is Paul Jaminet, and he recommends a quarter pound of liver a week just for overall health. Does that seem appropriate to you? Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's a good amount, a few ounces. Mm -hmm. Okay. So while we've talked about a lot of the different micronutrients, let's talk about um, the macronutrients. How do those play a role in uh, just uh, preventing or um, uh, therapeutically treating uh, gestational diabetes? Sure. Actually, I'll, I'll bring something up that's kind of interesting, some research I just came across when it comes to preventing gestational diabetes. Some really interesting research showing that um, protein consumption during the first trimester, adequate protein consumption during the first trimester could help prevent some cases of gestational diabetes because there are certain amino acids that are needed um, for the pancreas to go through the changes that it needs to go through in normal pregnancy um, to provide enough insulin. So the, there's actually um, the, the beta cells in the pancreas, the ones that produce insulin, rapidly increase in early pregnancy. And that's because insulin needs go up during pregnancy and also insulin resistance goes up during pregnancy. So you need enough insulin to overcome that insulin resistance and keep your blood sugar at normal levels. Um, but inadequate protein in the first trimester could um, limit the, the um, growth of those beta cells. So you would end up with insulin deficiency later in pregnancy. So I think that's a really interesting point that's like very, um, hasn't been totally fleshed out in the research, but I think it's something, you know, we should be cautious of. In terms of when a woman um, does get gestational diabetes, they need to be really cautious with carbohydrates because carbohydrates are the primary nutrient that raises your blood sugar. So carbs break down into sugars, sugar raises your blood sugar, and then high blood sugar leads to all the problems associated with gestational diabetes. So getting enough proteins and fats 
And then trying to get most of your carbohydrates from non-starchy sources, I think, is ideal um, for pregnancy. So lots of vegetables, some fruits, um, nuts naturally have some carbs. They just come balanced with a lot of fat and protein in them so they don't spike your blood sugar. If people are not fully paleo and, and are still eating you know, grains and legumes and dairy, then you just want to be cautious with the amounts that you're eating. And I would you know, emphasize legumes over grains because you get, you know, more protein in there. I'd emphasize certain dairy products that are higher in protein, like, you know, certain cheeses or Greek yogurt or, you know, butter and cream over regular milk and sweetened yogurt, which will give you a lot of carbs. So it's just kind of about choosing the quality and then the quantity of the carbohydrates that you're having. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the ancestral approach is to not view everything that, um, normally happens in the body as something that's wrong. So you mentioned that um, during pregnancy, women naturally become insulin resistant and right. their, um, their insulin production goes up. And that is so that the baby can get, get more glucose, correct? Correct. And so what, how do we know how reliable these tests are as far as if you, if you go into the doctor's office and you take the glucose drink, is that a reliable indicator um, you know, measuring your glucose levels after that, um, a, a test like that, are, are those reliable? Yes and no. That's a lot of, there's a lot of controversy around the ideal way to identify gestational diabetes. And here's the thing, what we're finding now, so insulin resistance is a normal part of pregnancy. And it's really important just from an ancestral or biological perspective, because it allows a baby to survive even if a pregnant woman experiences famine or short periods of starvation. The problem now is that in our modern world, food is rarely scarce. And we live in a world where refined carbohydrates are everywhere. Or you have access to carbohydrates year-round, which you might not have as much access to if you're really you know, living in, in you know, caveman times. So the adaptation can work against us. And in most pregnant women, they're able to, you know, overcome this level of insulin resistance with the increased insulin production just fine. Um, but in other women, and we're finding a lot of women have pre-existing insulin resistance issues now. I mean, as we know, there's this huge epidemic of undiagnosed prediabetes, right? And a huge epidemic of undiagnosed, like, actual type 2 diabetes. So what we're finding is that the insulin resistance that a woman comes into pregnancy with um, ends up affecting her risk for gestational diabetes. So what a lot of doctors are now doing and what I would hope would become more common is that they are screening with another test, a hemoglobin A1C or A1C for short, which I'm sure you're aware of, is a test that measures your average blood sugar in the last um, two to three months. So an, a high A1C rating can show that you have prediabetes or even type 2 diabetes if it's at a certain threshold. And one study in particular that was looking at um, first trimester A1C and then using the usual glucose drink later in pregnancy, which is the standard accepted way to, to diagnose gestational diabetes, they found that women who had an A1C of 5.9 or greater had, once they did the um, glucose test later in pregnancy, it predicted gestational diabetes 98.4% of the time. Mm -hmm. So 
a lot of the gestational diabetes we see is a result of pre-existing insulin resistance. Of course, it's not true for everybody because obviously there are many issues that impact a risk for having gestational diabetes. But the idea of, um, is it a made-up diagnosis? Because I've definitely heard that argument before. Like, okay, well, every woman has some level of insulin resistance. So every woman has high blood sugar in, in pregnancy and it's not a big deal. It's actually not true because actually blood sugar levels are naturally 20% lower during pregnancy than when women are not pregnant. So if your blood sugar levels are high during pregnancy, that means either you you don't have enough insulin to overcome that insulin resistance, or maybe you're eating a diet that is overstimulating or requiring your body to put out more insulin than it can. And so I think it all comes back down to what we're eating at the end of the day. Some women, no matter what, they're going to have such high levels of insulin resistance and such difficult to control blood sugar that they, they'll they need the help of insulin, supplemental insulin, or maybe medication to keep their blood sugar low. And we can talk about why having high blood sugar is a problem in pregnancy later if you want to. In other women, it's simply a dietary change that can help. When it comes to Diagnosing gestational diabetes um, with the um, glucose tolerance test, it's sort of a catch-22. The reason that it's used so frequently is that's how that's how gestational diabetes is defined in the research. I mean, that's also how most of the time how they diagnose type 2 diabetes is some sort of a, a glucose tolerance test, or maybe they'll do a fasting blood sugar and something else. But there are alternatives for women who don't want to do the glucose tolerance test. I believe there's good reasons. Um, not to, especially if you eat a low carbohydrate diet and your body really isn't primed to produce, you know, if you're eating, say, only, you know, 100 carbs in a day and you get a glucose tolerance test of 100 grams of pure glucose at once, you know, the pancreas needs time to adapt. And that's why in the past, the glucose tolerance test had guidelines that you needed to eat more carbs um, in, you know, at least three days or even up to a week before the test, they'd tell women to carb load. They've gotten rid of those guidelines mm-hmm. now, but I think that was after, you know, we were all, most Americans were already eating a really high carb diet. So it was like, okay, we don't need to tell people to eat more carbs before they come in for, you know, glucose tolerance tests. But I'll, I'll tell you, if, if you are eating pretty low carb already and you're going to go in for a GTT, I would eat somewhere between 100, 150 grams of carbs per day for probably three days or a week. And in my personal perspective, I think it would be ideal that we get an idea of where your blood sugar is to begin with without this huge surge of glucose. So that could be either an A1C in the first trimester to see what's going on. Later in pregnancy, A1C isn't super accurate because the turnover of hemoglobin is quicker than... Um, three months. So sometimes A1C can be artificially depressed in pregnancy. So that's, it's not the most accurate thing to use later on, but first trimester, it's pretty um, useful still. Um, Or you can request a blood sugar meter from your doctor and check your blood sugar. They usually recommend first thing in the morning, fasting blood sugar, and then one to two hours after each meal. And that gives you an idea of where your blood sugar is eating the diet that you normally eat. Mm -hmm. The is. We have a huge we have a huge discrepancy in pregnant women. There's some pregnant women who, you know, wouldn't want to check their blood sugar, wouldn't follow through with it. 
maybe would um, check the blood sugar of a family member because they just want to avoid having gestational diabetes because it's too scary of a diagnosis, right? People can cheat a home test. You can't really cheat the glucose tolerance test. You go into the doctor, it takes a couple hours, you're in and out. It's the one most providers are comfortable with. Because that's what the that's what all you know the professional organizations recommend. That's what all the guidelines recommend. So you know if you have a provider who's a little more open minded and you are a proactive person, I would do the home glucose monitoring. <laughs> but at a population level, I think there is kind of a good reason for the general um, glucose tolerance test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are some good recommendations. Now, I'd like to also talk about exercise. Tell me a little bit about some of your recommendations you would have for women just generally during pregnancy and then for um, women who are uh, interested in managing uh, gestational diabetes. Right. So, I mean, even all the professional organizations for pregnancy recommend 30 minutes of exercise every day for all pregnant women unless they have contraindications. So it kind of goes without saying you got to check with your doctor and see if there's anything going on um, beforehand. But for the most part, exercise is really safe in pregnancy, benefits outweigh the risks um, by far. What they recommend generally is um, aerobic exercise and some strength training combined. Both of them are helpful, just like non-pregnant people like benefit from both types of exercise. So things like walking, swimming, um, as long as you're stable on a bike and, you know, there is some risk of falls, so you have to be cautious there, but biking, um, elliptical, um, any type of, you know, moderate aerobic activity, hiking, running, jogging, if you're used to that, um, dancing, stair climbing, those are all totally fine. Um, strength exercises like lifting weights or resistance bands, um, anything that involves balance or stability balls, really helpful in pregnancy because there tends to be a lot of joint instability, especially later on. Um, prenatal Pilates and yoga can be really useful. So, um, and just for general pregnancy, it's a good idea, but especially for women who have um, blood sugar issues, exercise can lower their fasting blood sugar, after meal blood sugar levels, it can reduce the chance they'll need um, insulin or medication. And for women who are planning to become pregnant, exercising preconception and through your pregnancy greatly reduces the risk of gestational diabetes, up to 76% lower risk of gestational diabetes in moms who um, exercise preconception and during their pregnancy than moms who are inactive. So it plays a huge role in our body's ability to handle blood sugar and insulin. So it's definitely a good idea to to get moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're an, you're an expert in Pilates. So what kind of tell me a little bit about that? How is that um, used? How do you use Pilates? Well, um, specifically in pregnancy, Pilates is really great because it um, naturally focuses a lot on um, balance core engagement and engagement of the muscles of the pelvic floor and lower back. So in terms of joint stability um, and posture, it's a really good idea. Um, It also helps a lot of the exercises open up the chest, which for many pregnant women, as as your belly grows and your breasts grow, you kind of get a little hunched over. Um, And that's not only uncomfortable for the baby, but it throws off your balance and your alignment. So if you're, you know, leaning forward, we we compensate usually by compressing somewhere in our joints to keep us upright. And oftentimes that'll lead to, you know, issues in the lower back and the neck, 
um, instability in the hips and the pelvis. It's just not really great for our body. And especially in, in pregnancy, I've mentioned joints a little bit, but there's um, a surge in a hormone called relaxin, which is important for birth because it helps relax the ligaments and relax the joints a little bit so the, the pelvis can spread and you could birth a baby. I mean, it's really cool how it works, but it doesn't just affect the pelvis, of course. It affects the whole body. So there's more joint laxity, meaning like you can easily hyperextend your joints if you're not careful in pregnancy. And Pilates is great because the movements don't extend beyond um, the normal range of motion. You're usually working in mid, mid-joint range, so you don't risk as much injury um, as something where it's easier to hyperextend. Like um, for some people, yoga, you have to just be a little cautious on which movements you do and how you perform them because you can hyperextend a little more easily. Um, so it's great from a joint stability perspective, big time. Mm-hmm. So Lily, we talked a lot about the technical things about how to eat, but what about just putting this into practice on a daily basis? Tell me a little bit about what you've had to eat today and, or what you're going to have and how difficult is it to put this kind of diet into practice? Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think it's, I like to think it's easier than a lot of people will say. I personally, I mean, I, I like to cook, so that makes it a little bit easier, but I'm also kind of lazy, so I rely on my slow cooker a lot. Um, for breakfast, I had eggs and sautéed kale. That's one of my favorite things. Um, I have some grass-fed beef roast in the slow cooker. got a grass-fed cow this year, so my freezer's all packed. And, of course, grass-fed cows, are they're, the meat is a lot more tough because they actually use their muscles and, and move around. Um, so we usually have some sort of um, a grass-fed beef stew or roast or something in the slow cooker once or twice a week. So I have that going in the slow cooker. I'll probably throw in some um, onions and potatoes in it. Um, That's probably what I'll have for lunch. And I'll probably have the same thing for dinner just because that's easy. Um, Love snacking on nuts. Um, You know, some fruit and berries are also some of my faves. I occasionally have dairy. I do fine with it. So little bit of dairy here and there. I luckily have access to some really clean local goat milk. So I'll make, you know, goat cheese with that. But um, yeah, I try to keep it really simple and don't spend too much time in the kitchen and just go back to basics. Mm-hmm. So you man- you mentioned that you have potatoes in the slow cooker. Are those going to be okay for someone dealing with uh, diabetes? You'd probably just want to be cautious with the amount. A lot of it comes to the amount of carbs that are eaten at any single time or um, just in the course of the whole day. So when it comes to carb levels in pregnancy, there's a pretty big variance in how many carbohydrates are tolerated. So each woman is going to have to be um, cautious of her blood sugar levels and adjust the carbs um, based on her blood sugar control. So like in my book, I have three different levels of um, carbohydrates in, in different meal plans. So you can kind of choose and adjust and see how you can go up and down with different things. Potatoes are pretty high glycemic, so um, they raise the blood sugar relatively quickly, so I wouldn't recommend a big portion. Um, However, what you consume them with also changes the glycemic impact on on your blood sugar. So if you're having, you know, a small amount of potatoes, like I don't pack the slow cooker full of potatoes, Mm -hmm. but also I don't have blood sugar issues and I'm pretty active so I can handle more carbs. Um, But anyways, 
Um, having the potatoes along with the protein from the grass-fed beef and also the fat that's in there, and I'll probably put some butter on top because that makes it more delicious, will will reduce the glycemic impact. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Well, is there anything that we haven't gone over today that you'd like to mention to our listeners? Well, um, I would just say since we're just to circle back to the gestational diabetes thing, um, I really don't think it's something anybody needs to fear. I think there's a lot, especially in the, you know, natural mama's community about how can I avoid gestational diabetes? Um, you know, how can I like get out of doing the test or cheat the test or, or whatever it, I think we need to worry a little bit less about, um, you know, gestational diabetes being this end of the world diagnosis. I think most of the time it's pretty easy to manage and the the types of food, as long as you're not following the conventional guidelines on it, which are really high carb. I mean, they recommend a minimum of 175 grams of carbs per day, um, which is kind of crazy when gestational diabetes is defined as carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy to me. So as as long as you're not being given incorrect advice about how to nutritionally manage it, it's pretty easy to manage um, with food and managing it with food and movement definitely lessens your risk of needing the insulin and the medications. But even if you need them, it's, you know, it's a, it's a temporary thing that you'll need for a short period of time. Keeping your blood sugar at normal reduces all of the risks associated with gestational diabetes. It's really a matter of, you know, keeping your blood sugar where it should be. And then, you know, the types of, for a lot of people, it can end up being a blessing in disguise because the way that you eat to manage it is really the way that we should all be eating all the time Mm -hmm. and be eating postpartum to, you know, prevent the development of type 2 diabetes later in life. So, you know, I think it's, um, it's something that needs to, we need to lessen the fear around it because a lot of women just hear um, the risks or they hear horror stories from their friends. I mean, I've definitely had clients referred to me who, you know, they they were told no matter what, they're going to need insulin. I mean, they didn't even have high blood sugar levels. They didn't even, you know, not really high blood sugar levels. They didn't even give them a chance to do anything with food. And, and that's what's really frustrating to me. I want women to know that there's a lot you can do with food. Um, that's the whole reason I, I wrote the book, because I really think that we need to kind of change the status quo on how it's managed and cr- turn it into something that's empowering, not something that um, makes your pregnancy, you know, difficult or less than or, you know, something that should be feared. Well, Lily, it's been great talking with you, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. You bet. Thanks for having me.